Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where Crude investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is, in fact, becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse. My name is uh, Aaron Leggett. I'm the curator of Alaska history and culture at the Anchorage Museum. Uh, I'm also the president of the native village of Aklutna, and um, I've done a lot of studying about the history of uh, Alaska Native people um, through the centuries, and um, my background is in anthropology. So in the course of this series, I've talked with a number of people who have pointed to colonization as one factor or reason for crime in Alaska. Uh, but before we get into that, I think it would be helpful if you explained what life in Alaska looked like before colonization. Well, um, before um, contact uh, occurring in 1741 uh, through the Russian period, through most of the um, mid to late 18th century into the 19th century, in 1867, the United States purchased Alaska uh, from Russia or Russia's interest. Um, Pre-contact, you had uh, 20 Alaska Native languages spoken, divided among uh, two major uh, language families. And um, the uh, impacts uh, from colonization um, occurred uh, through both acts of physical violence and also uh, mental violence. Could you explain one or both of those a little bit, bit more? Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, you know, the, um, the founding of America through Manifest Destiny, uh, Alaska's a northern extension of that uh, effects. So you had things like... Um, outright uh extinction of people you also had uh impacts like disease loss of language introduction of uh new food materials and uh all these things add up to uh radically shift uh a people who had primarily lived uh from the land seasonally and um shifted uh political alliances and it really had a, a destabilizing effect so I did some reading and it looked like the earliest colonizers to Alaska came around the mid 1700s. And that was the British, the French, the Spanish and the Russians. Uh, and they all came here to trade furs, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, for the most part, the British, Spanish, French were doing more exploratory uh, type uh, expeditions and, and trading was certainly a component of that, uh, but these would be limited uh, contact. It was really the Russians were the ones that were 
essentially establishing trading posts, forts, and whatnot. And, and also taking uh, Native women as their sort of, how would I put it, uh, illegitimate wives. Mm-hmm. And was that Vitus Bering? Well, Vitus Bering was the first in 1741. He was more kind of like the Columbus. He just sort of discovered everything. He wasn't there. It was more uh, Baranoff, Shelikov, uh, these individuals, uh, members of the... So from 1741 up through 1796, I believe, um, the the traders, the Russian traders here were what is known as the Promyshleniki. They were kind of like independent fur traders after that um in the late 1700s eventually the russian uh, czar uh, granted an exclusive monopoly to what became the russian america company so there's many individuals uh, that were involved but it's also important to point out when we talk about russians we're not talking about necessarily ethnic kevin rus what putin would consider a real russian a lot of these people were under the Russian flag, but they were Baltic Germans, Swedish-speaking Finns, Belarusian, and also some of the uh, indigenous people of, of Siberia and Kamchatka uh, that worked under that flag, so to speak. Do you know what these interactions look like between um, the colonizers and the indigenous peoples? Well, um, certainly out on the Aleutian chain and Kodiak Island, it was pretty pretty brutal. It was, you know, essentially enslaving people when they came into Cook Inlet and into Southeast, they met um, just the way that the, the way settlements were set up and, and the way the people, the populations were, they met more resistance. And uh, eventually the headquarters was, was set up at Sitka, but it was, I mean, every, every evil imaginable thing you can, you know, it was killing people, murder, rape, you know, uh, taking people hostage. Uh, but you know, that was a short window of time. It's, so you have the immediate impact and then it's more some of the psychological impact and, and evolution that continues through the, the 19th century. You know, one thing that I think would help here is maybe an explanation or a definition of what is colonization. Uh, well, colonization is basically taking your, uh, one group taking your ideas, ideals, beliefs, economic system, language, and replacing another group's, uh, set of values, beliefs, economic system. You know, it's, it's setting up a colony really is, is what it essentially colonization is. And so it's spreading your dominion. And so how did colonization affect Alaska natives in the short term? And then how did it affect them in the long term? Well, I think, I mean, I think the biggest impact was twofold. It really kicks off uh, after the, after Alaska becomes part of the United States, uh, you have an active effort by religion and education to strip people of their traditional beliefs and their traditional language. In other words, it was, uh, you know, kill the Indian, save the man, uh, civilize the the wildness out of him. And so 
the belief was that if you took a person's language and belief system and essentially beat it out of them, that they would then conform to the set of norms that were put in front of them. And this is different than, uh, in some ways, than what the Russians did. The Russians, when they were educating uh, Native people, didn't actually force them to stop speaking their language. They told them, you have to learn Russian, but you can continue to speak your Native language. Uh, but the American system, English only, uh, we still have that legacy. It's, it's really uh, a legacy of um, the Anglo-Saxons, anywhere that the you know, as an extension of the British crown, uh, has that policy. So United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all, uh, adhere to that belief of English only. You know, that's interesting. I think that when at least I think of colonization in Alaska, I think of all the people that came before Americans in addition to Americans, but mm -hmm. it sounds like the Americans, their colonization was the most detrimental. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, there, there's no there's no comparison. Uh, and that's what surprises a lot of people. And, and for, you know, the, the version of Alaska history I was taught, it kind of fit in with that. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, uh, Cody, but, you know, that, you know, Ronald Reagan evil empire. It was easy to, to blame evil Russians, great Americans. It's much more complicated than that. There were certainly that early period from 1741 up through the end of the um, 1700s was, was pretty brutal. But by the beginning of the 19th century, relations had largely evened out. They'd kind of worked out this sort of tenuous balance. And, you know, the offspring of these Russian officers and native mothers, a lot of uh, the, the especially the men or the boys, would eventually take over working for the Russian America Company and were sent to be educated back in St. Petersburg. And so there are examples of Alaska Native people that essentially had a college education during the 19th century. But once the Americans came in, speaking Russian was as bad as speaking uh, a native language. And so they were largely ignored and subjugated uh, after that period of time, uh, even though in all, you know, in some cases, these guys were better educated than the officers they were dealing with, but they just didn't happen to speak English. I wanted to look at the, uh, the effects of colonization. So we kind of talked about the physical and, or at least you'd mentioned the physical and psychological <coughs> displacement, eradication of pre-existing culture and society. How does that affect someone on a personal level? Well, I think it has a, you know, a destabilizing effect. Uh, and when you're told that your belief system is worthless and your language is worthless and has no value and that your only way to succeed is this one limited defined way, it has a, a really destabilizing effect on thinking of who you are. I mean, you can imagine somebody who had grown up you know, under the American system to be told that everything that you believed in, you know, was, was, was worthless, you know, that English is the lowest form of language that, you know, your constitution doesn't mean shit that, uh, you know, any of the laws or any of the accomplishments that you've done are vastly, uh, inferior to, uh, the achievements of others. 
I mean, you can go down the list, you know, uh, it, it would be, you know, in, in a way it would be like every, you know, being told constantly that everything that you believed in is, is not valued, you know, mm-hmm. and that you'd have to do it another way and you better figure it out quickly or else you're going to get beat for it. So it became a matter of might over right. Um, yeah, but it was also institutionalized. It was supported by the church. You know, we're supposed to have this separation of church and state, but it was active, you know, carving up of Alaska by different religious sects and the education system. You would take kids out of their communities. They would, you know, if they were lucky, they would go back once every three or four years. You would be far away from home. You're exposed to, uh, we now know abuse, both physical and sexual. I mean, all those things, you know, it would, these people would come back sort of a a shell of what they were before. And, oh yeah, when they did show back up in the communities, oftentimes the skills that they needed to survive were not being passed down to them. So they're kind of stuck in between. So what what do you do? In my experience, a lot of Alaska native culture is oratory, mm-hmm. right? So it is, it's spoken stories. Yeah. Um, there's kind of this resurgence of an attention being placed on those stories being told. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that resurgence is happening? Well, I think that um, they're, you know, they were on the verge of extinction, number one. Uh, I mean, the way, the whole way our, Western democratic system is set up is the fact that it's based on being able to have a written system. So we value the idea of the written word more than we do the spoken word. You know, in other words, if it's not on a piece of paper, it didn't happen. So um, I think that the resurgence is both from a strictly documentary standpoint is one people don't want to see these things disappear but i think also in the stories are sets of of behavior and and life lessons and connections to place that go back thousands of years i mean if you think about we have you know the written word goes back what you know maybe 3,000 years, the earliest forms of, of writing, times that by three or four, and, and these stories go back. So it's about, I think, conveying a sense of, of understanding of place, values, way to live. Uh, and, you know, I think that a lot of these uh, are basic universal human values, but it never hurts to to remind people of them in, in a way that they can understand. And I think the reason that I brought up oratory kind of versus written, as you you put it, is it didn't mesh with American culture and ideals. And so Americans came into uh, Alaska and they sought to change that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because they wanted it to be this melting pot homogeneous kind of i you know american ideal that if you just work hard enough you know that you can succeed but when when the deck is stacked against you in so many ways they they don't actually mean what they say was there any pushback from any of the tribes when americans 
came here, you know, introduced themselves and started kind of doing some of these atrocities? Well, sure. There was isolated, uh, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's, it's this sort of chipping away at things. Um, but I think that when Russia sold Alaska or, you know, its interest in Alaska to the United States, it wasn't really well understood. And, you know, for 30 years, not a whole lot changed. It was only after the the gold rushes and some of the larger uh, industrial mining and fishing that, that took off that people really started showing up in large numbers. Um, and then eventually military and, you know, and so on and, and so forth. So it didn't, it wasn't just overnight, but it was this gradual chipping away at a system. And, you know, although the Treaty of Session, you know, clearly says that, you know, Alaska Natives have rights, they weren't really clearly defined in Alaska until 1971. You know, Alaska Natives didn't get the right to vote until 1924. They could apply in 1915 for citizenship if they could get two uh, white uh, Alaskans who had been in the territory at least nine months to vouch for them and say that they had, you know, renounced their uh, pagan ways and, and that they were civilized. So, you know, that, that's not uh, an equal system. So the reason I wanted to talk about the uh, gradual chipping away of a system, as as you put it, is to better understand why we are where we are now. And in this podcast, I try to, through talking to guests, try to understand why crime is the way it is in Anchorage. And I think that mm -hmm. this could apply to Alaska in general, right? Because it's the colonization of Alaska. Right. So if we're looking at colonization of Alaska and its connection to crime, what kind of crimes would you say are a result of colonization? Well, it, I mean, it's any crime under the sun, but really the driving factor for the bulk of the crime is primarily uh, alcohol driven. I think it, it's something, I don't know the exact statistic. At one point it was like 85% with the, you know, some of the more recent opioids and, and, and meth and stuff. That number's probably dipped a little bit, but I mean, the bulk of crimes are all tied back to some sort of uh, mind-altering substance. So it's domestic violence, sexual abuse, uh, accidental drowning, suicides, all those things. And a lot of it is, you know, as a result of um, unresolved trauma, grief, uh, behaviors that are inherited from generation to generation, uh, lack of uh, a sense of hopelessness, you know, what's the future going to look like? Uh, all those things. So if, you know, if you had a magic wand and you were able to essentially uh, eradicate, you know, the, you know, um, people, you know, with substance abuse problems, you would take care of the vast majority of, of the crime that is occurring. And this could be said for, you know, a lot of Alaska, you know, it's not just Alaska Natives. You know, we're we're only uh, a component of it, but there has to be something larger for the, you know, domestic violence, for the uh, sexual assaults. You know, those are all 
I mean, it's sort of categories on their own uh, in Alaska. And then some of it has become sort of almost accepted behaviors. Uh, you know, we're all familiar with the term of Spinard divorce, you know, and uh, where did that come from? And so. Um, and that is. That's basically where the wife takes you out with a 12 gauge shotgun. You know, instead of filing the paper, she just kills you or you kill her. Uh, it's easier. Yeah. You know, paperwork. Um, so, yeah. So it's, and, and some of it is part of being on the periphery, the sort of frontier mentality. Um, some of it comes there. Isolation, certainly lack of, uh, law enforcement, um, all of these, you know, sorts of things all contribute to it. We know from historical examples what happens when you introduce alcohol, uh, tobacco to a culture and people who have never experienced it before. But in your view, what happens? Well, I mean, it, it's it's well established. It 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 when you don't have uh, um, when you don't have centuries of of uh, behaviors and tolerances and and things like that uh, built in then it i mean essentially it's a poison you know it, it's killing you this is slowly what you're doing and so uh on top of you know where you know some of the behaviors were learned from it should be pointed out not surprisingly that for much of alaska you know our first exposure was under the russians and and the drinking culture of russians is is well documented as being one of uh, quite high consumption. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't done in moderation. It was, you know, you, you drink till the bottle's gone. You know, it's, it's the, you crack open the bottle of vodka and you throw the cap away because there's no point. You're not mm -hmm. going to close it up. Uh, so that's all, one component of it. And I don't want to say that that's the only one, you know, because there was also, uh, when the Americans came in that frontier Western, you know, saloon mentality, uh, they came with it, you know, hard drinking miners and, and fishermen and, you know, and whatnot. So, um, it just, you know, it developed over a period of time and what started out as a way to like mask your grief from seeing your whole family die of smallpox then become something that you pass on to, you know, uh, the next generation and they follow the behaviors and then something happens and somebody dies or somebody gets drunk and stabbed. I mean, all these things, you know, and it just goes on and on, you know? Um, and it's sad to see it because a lot of it, like I said, is largely driven, uh, by excessive consumption of, of alcohol or like I said, some, more recent phenomenons, you know, drugs, but the bulk of it is, is alcohol related. And there's things that people do when they're drinking that they wouldn't do normally. You know, Aaron, I want to know, <clears throat> what do you personally think about this? I mean, do you harbor any animosity toward um, those Americans that came in here and did that? Or is it 
more of like an academic, like, okay, that's where we came from. Let's focus on where we're going. Well, it's a little bit of both, I would say, Cody, because I think um, first you have to understand it uh, to be able to know where it where it all stems from. But at the end of the day, the only thing you have control of in your life is the decisions you make. Uh, so I do believe that there is to, to pull out from under it, you have to be the change that you want to, to see. Um, and that can be very hard. So, you know, it, it affects every facet of, um, of, of life, but it's also, I believe up to the person to, to figure out a way to rise above, you know, um, you don't have to repeat these bad behaviors and it is okay to ask for help. And, and I think a lot of it, you know, I mean, we, you know, I know you've talked a lot about, you know, the homelessness problem, uh, here in Anchorage and really it's, it's a lot of places and the bulk of it. I mean, what would take care of 80, probably 80 to 85% of it would be, access to substance abuse treatment and mental health. Mm-hmm. If you fully address those two things, you would take care of 90% of it. You know, it really is that, but we've created a system where we don't, you know, um, we don't put the resources toward it. You know, it, it it's, it's so clear to me that is what needs to happen. But our belief, sort of the ideology that we've been indoctrinated with is that it's somehow a mental flaw in the individual's part, uh, that there is some weakness in them uh, to, um, to be pointed out, you know, that it's not something that's part of a larger systemic uh, issue. So here we are, you know, and like I said, it wouldn't solve all of it, but my God, you know, it would, it would solve a lot of it. You know, it, it's like, how do, how do people, um, rise above their, you know, circumstances when they come to this country and, and the groups that have historically thrived value, um, education and, and family and connection to a set of, of beliefs. And, but when those beliefs are, to, when you're told are, are useless, then what do you have? So what's a form of brainwashing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because it, it becomes, you go from being independent to being dependent and a government that is set up to foster this dependence because then it supports itself. You know, I mean, you think about all the money we spend on uh, jails and police and, and you know, we're very good at, 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 you know, addressing the problem, but we never look at the cause. You know, why are our police forces so large? Why do they have to carry guns? Why do we have all these school shootings? I mean, you know, we can be reactive, but when we try to be proactive, that's where we tend to fall down. Do you think we're better now than we have been in the past about being proactive? 
Hmm. Well, I think for uh, uh, seeing a value for certainly native languages and and customs and cultures, yeah, we're at at a more enlightened place than we've ever been. Um, But when it comes to the larger issues, no, we're not. We're, I mean, we're, you know, when I was a kid, the idea of, of a mass school shooting never entered my mind. We were worried about the Russians dropping in nuclear bombs. I never did we have a, a, an active shooter drill. And now these things, I mean, they're happening monthly. That didn't exist. And where does it come from? And And what are we doing? But I truly believe that a lot of it's really does have to be addressed by mental health and and substance abuse treatment. You know, what was interesting to me a while back is um, I was editing an interview for my work and um, this Alaska native woman who lives up north was talking about how she used to live in Anchorage and she was giving her perception of Anchorage and how dangerous it is. Mm Do you or have you encountered that a lot with people who live in villages and their perception of Anchorage being like, oh, that place is dangerous? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think um, there is that perception that it is dangerous. Uh, but I think the danger manifests itself in in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, not a lot of it, but some of it's also tied to just the the setup of the uh, city. You know, if you don't have a car, you're pretty much screwed. And if you got to rely on public transportation, uh, you know, during the wintertime, it can put you into vulnerable places and places, you, you know, you wouldn't normally be if you had a car. Um, but is it more dangerous than you know, uh, a rural village? Yes and no. But in some ways it's, it's, you know, it's not as dangerous because hypothetically, you know, if some shit really goes down, I can call 911. In a lot of villages, maybe you could get a trooper there three days from now. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you know, the idea of like an active shooter in Anchorage few hours it could be days in some of these communities so if there was an active shooter in the village yeah you know somebody you know guy has too much to drink kills his wife you know and now he's despondent over it and you're counting on the trooper to show up maybe two days later i mean you know whereas here you know the cops will show up and and generally speaking they'll have it you know the suspect arrested within a few hours I think that's interesting to a lot of people that there are no uh, law enforcement in a lot of these villages. And so it's just people uh, like in a society with themselves rather than, you know, having these these people that are kind of the, the mediators. Right. Yeah. And I think in some ways, you know, you hear stories of where because there might have a VPSO in the village they're able to talk the person down because they've grown up with them. They've known them. I mean, they, it, these crimes become very personal. It, it, it's, it's not, 
it's not necessarily the same as, as could or could happen here. What kind of crimes do we see in the villages? Uh, I mean, it, it could, you know, everything under the sun, but probably the biggest one would be domestic violence and, and sexual assault. That Those were probably the biggest ones. Those are just big in Alaska. Yeah, they're big in Alaska, right. Uh, but, I mean, you know, those would be, you know, if you're, you know, primarily, you know, if, you know, it could happen to anybody, but if you're a woman, I mean, the, the, the numbers just explode on your chances of being a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault, uh, are, are huge. I don't know much about this and I, I just wrote it down and I want to see if, if you have any uh, knowledge on it, but there are a lot of native women who disappear. Yeah. And there is this big drive to uh, kind of put a spotlight on that. Mm -hmm. I know there's a woman who does like a patchwork. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that she's uh, a patchwork quilt. Is that correct? And she's trying to draw attention to all of these these missing Alaska Native women. Right. Why specifically Alaska Native women? Well, I think because... uh, twofold you on the one hand you have a population that is is historically vulnerable you know uh and it then can lead to situations that could increase your odds of becoming a victim of these and then on the flip side the the follow-up you know for a lot of you know it's been proven Again, this isn't just for native people, you know, native women. Um, I mean, what was there? It was like 2,000 uh, rape kits sitting on the shelves or something in the state crime lab. You know, just the, the, the follow-up doesn't occur or the beliefs or, you know, the institutionalized racism that, that can occur all can add to it. So I think that the spotlight is being shown because – Again, it's not just an Alaskan thing, but anywhere there's a sizable native population, um, there have you know been these upticks in your likelihood of getting away with it. And I just looked this up, and her name is Amber Webb. Yeah, Amber Webb. Yeah, we've she's doing a a cuspuck, uh, you know, traditional uh, garment that that yeah mm-hmm. has the faces of um, many missing Alaska Native women. Yeah, missing or murdered, yeah. Missing or murdered, okay. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about these issues uh, in general terms. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific stories or something that is indicative of everything we've been talking about, about the colonization of Alaska Natives? Yeah, I mean, I got a story. Um my wife's uh, first cousin, um, the end of uh, August, I won't name the village, but uh, in the interior, uh, these uh, this couple showed up. They probably brought drugs in. Um, they um, were partying all day. There was an altercation, and her cousin ended up stabbing 
a guy that he was, you know, friends with and stabbed him to death. And, uh, you know, her cousin had all sorts, you know, he had trauma, unresolved traumas from his mother dying in a house fire that they believed was probably, you know, purposefully set. You know, it's just these senseless, you know, acts of, of violence and, and nobody wins. And now, you know, he's he's on trial and he's, you know, probably going to do anywhere between 40 to life. He hasn't went, uh, you know, they haven't had the trial yet. But, um, you know, it's like, what, why do these things have to happen? Why, you know, when people could be completely reasonable, but then you, you add drugs and alcohol to the mix and all of a sudden, you know, crazy shit can happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's also because, you know, they, what did he have to live for? You know, he didn't have, a, you know, a stable job and he was, you know, um, you know, kind of going from thing to thing and, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all connected. Years ago, I was watching uh, a show. Um, there was this prison show on and this one just so happened to be about Alaska. And they were interviewing this young native Alaskan dude. And they asked him something to the effect of, you know, what do you think about being here? And he said something along the lines of, I always knew I was going to be here. My dad came here. My grandpa came here. You know, so to him, it it seemed normal. And I thought that there was... You know, they, they were dramatizing it on this show, but I thought that being from Alaska, uh, me being from Alaska, I, I felt like it was it was saying much more. There was something underneath that. Right. Yeah, that, that you know, ironically, you know, the way the human brain is set up is that when you experience trauma in childhood you subconsciously end up recreating those behaviors. So if you were um, sexually abused as a child, your chances of becoming the abuser are, you know, I don't know the exact, you know, fivefold, tenfold, whatever it is. And so, um, yeah, you end up recreating these traumas because that's all you know how to do. And that in a weird, strange way feels comfortable mm -hmm. one thing that you said earlier that i wrote down was that alaska natives as a culture went from being independent to being dependent mm -hmm. and i think that that understanding of it to me makes sense in a lot of different ways as far as like okay you have this maybe you're a very independent high schooler or child and then all of a sudden you find alcohol or heroin or whatever and now you're dependent on on this thing right mm -hmm. and to apply that to an entire group of people is it's interesting and sad it is and you know you think about the fact that you know a few generations ago you had people that were living in some of the harshest climates on earth and thriving to 
you know, a few generations later, um, you know, all the dysfunctions rear their ugly head. There was a, a movie in the 90s about the Maori called Once Were Warriors that, that deals with all the same sorts of issues about, uh, you know, the colonization of New Zealand. And, and so, you know, what it means to be living in the society today. And, and that title really, I think, was indicative of, of that, you know, being fiercely, you know, community minded, but also independent in the sense of your success was in your hands, not a larger force beyond it. You know, I just had this thought of what colonization or at least a piece of colonization can be understood as is the disintegration of another culture. So what happens to those people that are a part of that culture when everything that they've known their entire lives and generations before them is just, you know, systematically disintegrated. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. Uh, you know, you have essentially those that can make the transition and those that can't. And, you know, that's sort of, <laughs> You know, I'm here today because of certain decisions that were made, you know. And I think where my mind goes from there is people in America, the people who are generally listening to this podcast, if your culture was just disintegrated, you know, no more Dr. Pepper, no more Avengers movies, no more McDonald's and, you know, going to yoga, you know, all of that well, stuff is just gone. Look at Look at the, the, you know, the Twin Towers. That mm -hmm. that was like one tiny, man, two buildings that brought this nation essentially to, you know, uh, a sense of mourning over two buildings on a per population basis. It's the sim the symbolism of the Twin Towers. It wasn't the number of people that were killed. It was the way that it was done, the way it was broadcast. So, you know, it it created a sense of vulnerability in our country that we had not experienced probably since the War of 1812, maybe the Civil War. I mean, nothing in our lifetimes had ever led us to believe that that could happen. Not in a million years, you know, could we think that, you know, these symbols of capitalism could be taken out in a couple of hours. And the world changed that day through that one act. But that one act was, I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to, you know, if you had survived, you know, the uh, wounded knee, you know, or... The bombing of Angoon in 1882, where the Russian or the uh, U.S. Navy, you know, bombed the village, burned every, you know, one of the canoes except for the one that was out fishing and left them uh, essentially almost high and dry. And only because the Deshitan uh, Beaver House was not in the village at the time were the people there uh, saved for the winter. You, you know, the government's never formally apologized for that act. 
Could you explain that a little bit more? I don't think I'm too familiar with that. Yeah. So in 1882, um, you know, the government, um, the government, governmentality of Alaska, the systems were not really in place. It was under the War Department that sort of the uh, managing of the territory's affairs. There was no central government. And so there was a Clinkett shaman that was killed in a, in a, in a whaling accident. And the Clinkett custom was that this person who was so valuable to the community that a price had to be paid to be compensated to them for his loss, like 30 blankets or something. Um, and when they didn't get it, they were upset about it. And so this was then viewed as threatening and that the Indians were hostile. And so the Navy just bombed the whole village of, of Angoon. And like I said, you know, took out every one of their dugout canoes, except for one that was out fishing that day. And, and had it been there, you know, Angoon wouldn't be a village today. It would have been wiped off the map. Uh, but. So when you say bombing, are these planes flying over this? No, village? these were ships. The ships. 1882 Navy ships out, you know, shooting cannons. Basically, they found some. Um, you know, I think they found one of the shells recently and unexploded. You know, these mortars that they would launch that would explode and and whatnot. So historically, it seems like America just throws money at these problems. You know, now. They have thrown money and certain opportunities at Native Americans. They seem like they throw money and certain opportunities at Native Alaskans. Do you think that that is sufficient or what else do you think should be done? Well, I mean, it should be pointed out that when we talk about throwing money at, at a problem, it, you know, Alaska Natives, Native Americans are a distinct class, a political class, a, you know, in other words, there's a government to government relationship between native tribes and the federal government. And there are certain governmental rights and agreements that are in place that I don't think most people fully, truly understand, you know, if, if the government enters into a agreement like the Treaty of Versailles, it's the same thing as entering in a treaty with a Native American group or the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. So where on the one hand money is being, uh, I guess you could say, thrown at the problem, there are also fundamental agreements that are in place that that have to be um or should be fulfilled oftentimes they were largely ignored uh but they're still there they're still valid do you have any examples of this i mean i don't think there's one treaty that's ever been fully honored that you know uh you know there's there's in you know in all these rights that are supposed to be guaranteed that are sort of largely ignored. But anyways, where I was going with this is that, yeah, we do have a tendency to throw money at the problem, but it's like putting a bandaid on, you know, a, uh, 
a gunshot and we're happy to continue to put band-aids there, but we're not, we don't want to address the actual issue. I mean, it's like foreign aid to, to countries, you know, how much money gets sent to sub-Saharan Africa and, and what does that do? You know, and how much of it gets to the people and how much of it gets skimmed off the top and, you know, all these issues. So, yeah, we're very good at, as I said earlier, we're good at being, you know, reactive instead of proactive. We'll we'll continue to, you know, uh, nickel and dime things to address, you know, certain issues, but we don't actually want to get to the root cause because it would require us to... I guess, look in the mirror. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me, why is it that in our country we have a Holocaust museum? And don't get me wrong, Holocaust is one of the most horrific events of the 20th century. But we don't have a museum that deals with, you know, the Holocausts for, you know, what happened across the West, the expand manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. And why is that? I suspect it's because we as Americans can look at the Holocaust Museum, see the inherent evil of it, but deep down we can say that wasn't us. That was the other. That was the Germans. We were the liberators. We were the ones that came to the rescue. So we can recognize the evil of it, the trauma of it, and all of those, the, the horrendous nature of it, but it's not us when we look in the mirror. We're not the ones that have to to face up to that, you know. It's easier for us to look at something like that objectively rather yeah. than being self-analytical. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we address the real issue then? Well, I think I think the first step is knowing the history. I think that we, we as a country and certainly we as Alaskans sort of take this willful ignorance to our, our history, or we only want to believe one version of history. Uh, so I think that's the first step to really understand it. You have to go back and, and see the systems are that were in place. Now it's also important to take, into consideration that we can't apply today's values and judgments to the past for some of the decisions that were being made because they were being made in what was thought to be a uh, a beneficial manner in some cases and not not at all so we have to recognize that you know it's sort of like you know you know You'd have, you know, somebody of your great grandmother's generation and all African-Americans were, were called Negroes. Like that's, that's how it was, you know, mm -hmm. it was, so we can't say grandma's racist because she uses the word Negro. That, that's what they knew. So now to move beyond that, you know, you have to learn and, 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 and grow from it. So I think that's the first step is to really, truly understand our history. And, and I mean, I think, you know, your podcast here is, is, is a huge benefit to these, you know, type of issues because, because of the transient nature of Alaska in general, I think that people 
either just don't give a shit or just want to know a very narrow piece of Alaska history to fit into their narrative of what this place should be because because it's the last frontier. So they romanticize it. Yeah, they romanticize it. You know, they, I mean, we have a legislature that, you know, most of them, I would argue, don't truly understand what the creation of the permanent fund was about, you know. Uh, and I really enjoyed, you know, the interview you did with uh, with Cliff Rowe because he just breaks it down. I mean, he's very sort of like dragnet, like just the facts, like this is mm -hmm. what it is, not what you think it is. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. This is how it was created. You know, we created this mythology around it. It, it. it amazes me. You know, the more I think about it, the more pissed off I get that I think that why we weren't taught in school what the history of this program is and how fundamental it has been to our state. What you just said, I, I was just writing down, we've created a mythology around it. And I think that you can take that and apply it to, I mean, how many things? If we're talking just specifically about Alaska, we create these mythologies. It does lead itself to creating mythology. I, I you know, it is big and bold and, and that. I understand that. You know, there's yeah, exactly. a tendency to do it, right? I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, you know, there are you know, things that you'll never find anywhere else in the country. You know, I was just reading the paper the other day and the woman that had to save her cat from being attacked by a wolverine. Like, that that's insane, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so there are things that are so rugged and, and wild and, and, and so different, but don't fall into the trap, I would argue, of thinking – that you can, as the individual, conquer nature. And that's kind of where a lot of this mythology comes from. That it's, I, I call it the Scrooge McDuck syndrome, because to me, he sort of epitomizes this. You know, through his hard work and his smarts, he comes to the Yukon, he strikes it rich, he saves his money, he invests it, and he builds an empire. Like that is what we aspire to do. And he did it by himself and he did it fair and square, so to speak. I mean, there's, there's whole articles that have been written about sort of the, uh, ideology of, of Scrooge McDuck. And don't get me wrong. I, you know, love him. I mean, fuck, look at our president. Like what we, before he was our president, the mythology that was created, that he created for himself, that he was, you know, Mr. New York, you know, the apprentice, all we built that, you know, the thing he hates more than anything is when we don't do that, but we get sucked into it to believe the hype, you know, and we may finally have a period of time where we were coming to the realization that it was all a house of cards, so to speak, but who knows. So as you were talking about that, the the Scrooge McDuck, um, what did you call it? The Scrooge McDuck syndrome. Syndrome. Yeah. Um, and then you you applied that to the president Trump. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking is, oh well, there's a connection there too, actually, because Trump's grandfather, great grandfather, 
had a whorehouse in Whitehorse in the Yukon Gold Rush. So his mythology is tied back to essentially the Scrooge McDuck mythology where he ran the the bar and whorehouse in Whitehorse and then made a little bit of money, went back to New York, bought a piece of property, built it up, handed that off to his son who then handed it to Trump. So it, I mean- It's all it, connected. It's all connected, you know? And I think what I was what I was getting at was that you have this uh, this like westernized kind of like American dream of striking it rich, mm-hmm. and then you have those people who are the the colonizers, right? And they go to these places that are indigenous, and these people are you know these people are happy in these places, and they're living the their life the way that they've always known to live their life. But then you have these people who come in and they become the oppressors and they try to apply the Scrooge McDuckness, you know, to that culture, which is not parallel. You can't do that. Well, there's there's two there's two components to that, though. There there is the component of come in, get rich, do it as fast and cheap and quick as possible. And then there is the. I want to recreate what I left behind. So they're they're kind of they run in parallel to each other but they're not viewed as the same, you know. Essentially, you know, uh I know again going back to Cliff Grow, you know, in the uh the podcast that he did, you know, he said we have a fundamental question, who stays and who pays? And that really is what we're talking about here. And so, yeah, so on the one hand, you have the people that just want to come in, that look at it as literally like the adventure, the colony, the, uh, you know, the conquest, the essentially think of it as like climbing a mountain or skiing down, snowboarding down a first descent. There's those that want to get that first descent, want to be the achievement to do it. But once they've done it, they're done. Then there are the people that say, man, that was so great. I want somebody else to experience that. So I want to build the chairlift or I want to do this or I'm going to show how to do this. And and then I'm going to carve it this way. And then I'm going to name this run this. And I'm going to claim that this is this spot was whatever, you know, but they're they're two different things, but they're related in the sense of of ignoring what already existed before you arrived, you know, that that mountain could have had an indigenous name, that you may not be the first person to have been on the top of it, that, you know, there are beliefs about, you know, these places, all these things that don't enter your mind because you think of being as sort of the, you know, the explorer, I guess. Eddie Izzard does this great great piece in a stand-up where he he's talking about colonizers and he's talking about people that are just planting a flag yeah and and he's like oh yeah we were we we're the first people you know to, and they plant the flag and then the indigenous people are like no no we've been here forever he's like well do you have a flag yeah exactly and that that's the point you know and also it should be pointed out that this system that we have largely sprung out of a place that had been colonized three or four times before we got to the point that we're at today. 
you know, the different uh, Celtic and um, Germanic peoples that had come through there, the Romans. I mean, it it took English as a language is it's a bastardization of, of two influences, this Latin influence and this Germanic influence coming together. So it is uh, this kind of morphing of, of things. So, but it had, you know, centuries to develop when this happens in like a period of less than 50 years or a hundred years or 200 years, it's at such an accelerated rate and the effect that it has on the rest of the world. Looking back on those first colonizers, what could they have done differently to avoid the short-term and long-term harm that they caused? I mean, the Russian period is, is largely an arc to me of, you know, these independent fur traders coming in wild West, everything you could imagine, subjugating, enslaving, you know, brutalizing people. Finally, then the government getting involved and through the sort of uh, state-sponsored religion, largely tamping out a lot of that, uh, but bringing in a system, a new way of thinking. Um, but that one that also, as I said, didn't force you to completely abandon all your beliefs, uh, just many of them. And then the American system coming in to me, you know, that, that sort of unholy alliance between church and state where you had basically state sponsored religion in schools for the civilizing effects of Alaska natives and taking their language, uh, and culture and largely marginalizing and abandoning it. So to me, that's the probably the biggest one um, would be that destabilizing effect and the lack of transmission of, of knowledge um, was probably the biggest damaging effect. I mean, the other things, yes, the, you know, the Western influences, uh, you know, the, the foods that came in, the, in you know, uh, sugars and, and, and these things all manifest themselves in, in different ways that have other impacts. So what about now? What can we do individually and as a society to help to help safeguard the cultures and traditions of certain groups of people? Well, I would I mean, I would say that, you know, the, the cultures that sprung up from this place have been here for thousands of years. And there's an inherent wisdom and belief system that I think we can all learn from. So I would say learning more about those things, understanding that people have lived in these communities for thousands of years and, um, you know, knowing the history. So I think it's education, I guess, in a lack of a better term is, is understanding it and being sympathetic and, and, trying to make a positive difference, however that is, you know. Lost Anchorage is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music is by Michelle McLaughlin. 
For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Carly Mortensen, and Alaska Surf Adventure for supporting this podcast at the company man level. <laughs>